You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello, I'm James O'Brien. Thank you for downloading the latest episode of Unfiltered, episode 30, featuring a man who I make no bones about describing, for my money, as one of the most important and impressive people in the country. I'm talking about Jamie Oliver. We will be talking partly about his new campaign, which you can find out more um, at jamieoliver.com slash enough. But I am here for an hour, hopefully, to show you that although he's instantly recognisable and you think you've known him for the best part of 20 years, you, you don't actually know Jamie Oliver very well at all. You're one of those people who, for my generation, it, it, it's as if you've always been in the public eye. So I want to start when you weren't. I want to start in the family pub back in Essex. And the the first realisation that, that, that food... And you were kind of Ooh. inextricable. The the, the 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 relationship that you had with food that's different from most kids. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a little village called Clavering in Essex. I lived in the local pub. Uh, my mum and dad still together, still work there now. Dad still does the breakfast every day. Uh, I didn't know then, but he was a pioneer of what we would call a gastro pub. So then and now, sort of five, six chefs on a shift, pastry all made on site, whole animals, uh, game, um, local British food, but also an eye open to sort of foods around the world. How, how come he went down that route so early? He grew up in a pub. Okay, <laughs> my uncle's got a pub. It's <laughs> all publicans. Um, but I think I think what we've probably forget is the concept of good food in a pub is yeah, new. That's what I mean. If yeah, he's ahead of the game, he's chicken in a basket and scampi. And this was forty years ago. So oh. I was I was born in Ockingdon, in sort of the Thames Estuary, sort of nearish to Grays and South End. Uh, my dad came from South End, and then we went pretty much as soon as I was born to a little village called Clavering, and it was a craggy old pub, and he just put his heart into it, and that was my home. So I lived above the pub for most of my life, and I think it was a beautiful existence. And Happy family. A happy family. Busy, though. You, I mean, you don't see much of your parents, I suppose, until they you They were always working. there. I didn't... Right. You're absolutely right, because now I'm a parent, I'm comparing it to my mm. parenting or... And so I didn't see Dad that much because he was always working, but he was always there, which felt as yeah, good. Okay. And, in, and in part of a family and a team in a restaurant and a pub, you strangely acquire... Like, the girls that worked in the restaurant were like my aunties, surrogate mums. I mean, I, I, I actually remember vividly throwing up on most of them as a three, four, five-year-old, just being ill. Um, I, I know that they changed my nappy. Uh, and there is a sort of like gentle form of love that's yeah. a bit more than just an acquaintance that you sure. get from those girls and, and you know my dad's staff stay a long time and in the country of course it's not as kind of competitive as no. the city so you know um there were 30 year old women that when i was a kid that were 65 when they're still, they're, they're still there you know where, where did his inspiration come from food wise then because well, as you say he's way ahead of the game and there wouldn't have been many places that he could have pointed out as i want to be like that well he was student of the year in south end college was he and then he went and worked in france and then he came back and was a very young publican in a very rough pub in Ockingdon. Yeah. And when I was born, I think he looked around him and thought, got to get out of here. This is not where I want to bring a kid up. And I mean that respectively. It was quite a rough pub. And he was actually the youngest liquor licensee in the country at the time. Was he really? Uh, yeah. And mum and dad were a brilliant team, which is important in a family business. 
But the food stuff, the, the, the idea of bringing in a whole animal, the idea of, of serving up creative food in an Essex pub, where did he get that idea from? Do you know? I just think I, I just think he felt it was common sense. Really, I don't think it's rocket science. I think you know there is nothing more beautiful and inclusive than having a pint and having a beautiful pie or a beautiful dish. And and obviously, running a business is really tough, as most people that run any business knows. And when you're in the middle of nowhere in the country at a time when the sort of police and drink driving clamps down you know we you know you can't everyone used to drink and drive then they didn't so like on a monday in in the depths of winter dad was doing mexican nights and no no one within 100 miles would have ever had a taco or a tortilla (laughs) or a burrito this is 40 years ago bro i didn't know um indian nights really um and like he kind of if truth be said he probably three quarters got it right it was british version of but of course if you live in the country, that's a night out. Yeah, it's normally bundled with a good price. There's bloody flags everywhere, yeah. you know, and everyone's getting a little bit of Mexico um, in Clavering. So how come he didn't want to have 100 cricketers' arms? He He's just like the real deal. He's just uh, focused on his business, his world, his, his life. But no, no, no mom, empire ambitions. No, he's just like a robust... Uh, You're really proud of him, aren't you? Uh, and mum, yeah. yeah, they're a brilliant team. Mum did, mum did all the books, and she was like, certainly for most of the time, the classic landlady. She'd get her rollers on. Do you remember rollers? Yeah, of course. And she'd have that hairspray that was in the gold bottle that stunk. And she'd like get even on a Tuesday night, she'd get like glammed look, up. Yeah, and then up to the nine, eight thirty. I I sell. Yeah, hello, <laughs> darling. You know, it was all of that. When I left for London. I left to go and see the big boys and learn from the Rue boys and yeah. get to the Ritz and the kind of the Michelin stars. And it took me about 10 years to realise how great mum and dad were technically, uh, operationally okay. in the industry. I never realised until later it was just work and I, know, and I loved it. But also what was interesting is as I've been challenged over the years in many different ways, I realised that my real school and my real learning was the pub. Mm. And actually... And I don't know if you can kind of resonate with this, like as we look around us at this beautiful country that Mm. we are very lucky to live in, actually, really, the pub is possibly the most democratic place in the country. Um, Everyone's welcome. You know, um, when I grew up as a little kid to a teenager working and serving people or just being a kid and sitting with them, I sat with Zimmer Frames and old age pensioners having a little half a sherry you know, or a little stout. You know, my best friends were gypsies and cockneys. There was city boys there having the posh wine and the posh whiskey, single malts. So when do you remember realising that it was that bit of the pub that you felt a spiritual, it was the kitchen, not the office, not the front of house, not the bar, but the kitchen was where something resonated with you that didn't resonate anywhere else? Well, a a few things happened. Um, I think like in primary school, Look, my teachers were all amazing, but I was always kind of the thick kid. Um, I wasn't achieving what was considered normal or average. Because you struggled to read, basically. Yeah, and I didn't really, and and dyslexia wasn't really easily found in those days. And and, and dyslexia was kind of thought of then as an on-off button. And everyone with dyslexia literally had the thickest glasses on the planet. And it was like proper hardcore. Whereas mine is sort of an unusual dyslexia. I do struggle to read and I've had to develop ways of blagging it and... And you're conscious of this uh, even at primary. Yeah, like, like, because a lot of my job, like yours, is auto cue or script. And, and actually what I've got very good at memorizing. Okay. Um, And then what happens is because you're not actually, you're pretending to read a script. uh, Yes, you get it wrong. So then you have to develop ways of being able to get it wrong and get it right. Right But then really what you become, you chat. 
instead yeah. of speech. So that's helped me in some respects. So I don't think being dyslexic has to be a negative. It can be a positive. Tough at school, though, because no it one wants tough. to stand out, do they, at that age? No, and I was, I, I, I always, certainly in secondary school, I was always in special needs. You get yanked out of class. And because I was sort of like... I got on with many types of people in the class. I wasn't bullied, sure. but like I, I can see why kids do get bullied for that kind of. You kind of what you say you weren't bullied. The story that I've heard you tell before is when you and your fellow special needs students would stand up. <laughs> yeah. everyone, uh, everyone starts singing special, special needs to the tune special of "Let It Be." <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Uh, you see, you can yeah. laugh about that. And uh, good, it's the healthiest way to respond to it. Other kids would be haunted by that still today. Uh, I think so. And actually, in my time doing events or Q&As or <laughs> demonstrations, you know, it, and it always nearly gets me. Right. You know, okay. like you'll get a 7, 8, 9, 10, 12-year-old boy, girl, yeah. saying why they feel completely compromised, patronised because of dyslexia. Yeah. And it's seen as a disability, not you never a had superpower. That. You, you, and, you uh, always... Yeah, well, well, I, I think I lucked out. Yeah, clearly. And, and, but I know for a fact probably the majority of kids get singled out and they feel bad about it and it and it upsets them. And obviously now as a parent, there's nothing that upsets me more than a kid that feels... There's enough to feel bad about, yeah, you know, you know, without getting into boyfriends, girlfriends, yeah, hormones, social media and all that old banter. But I think, <laughs> I think, like, what is normal is obviously a normal part of growing up and finding your space. But I remember going to sort of like a parents' evening and it was just all bad news. And that was great. Put that to bed, but it's not the end of the world. Crack on. But I do remember at the age of about 11, my responsibility was to cook a full Monty roast dinner at home in between shifts at the pub for the family. And it was good. And dad went, well done, son. That was amazing. And I, and my hairs went, ah, and, and, and I remember, and and like, you look, us humans or animals or mammals, whatever you want to call us, like we're pretty basic, you know, I think in life it's best to stick to what makes you feel good. Yeah. And, and that cook, was a proper Cooking moment. got me the credit that school or anything else. I, I mean, I love football, but I was never good at it. Right. Uh, so cooking kind of got me that pat on the back that I think everyone needs something, yes. a version of. To be good at something. Yeah. So simply just to feel valued exactly. and valuable. And there's another little story that confirmed that, which was two of my mates were good mates were gypsies. And I'll never forget... BMX time, ET, um, in between shifts at the pub, mm. like the, the curtains would get closed. It would close at three o'clock. And, but the buffet's there, the bar's there. I'd run in and we'd all have a job. So we'd be kind of getting drinks. We'd get in packets of crisps or nuts. And, you know, when you take the nuts away, there'd be like, like normally a nice, a nice sexist woman, uh, <laughs> half undressed behind there. So as, as a 13 year old, that was fun. No, but uh, we, 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 I used to make sandwiches, but really good yeah, sandwiches. Yeah. Anyway, it was like a packed lunch. So we'd get on our bikes and we'd go off into the forest. And I never forget one day because my mate didn't have a very wide spectrum of foods that he ate. And it sounds really pretentious and it possibly is, but it wasn't intended to be. We were in this clearing having a picnic and he went to eat this smoked salmon sandwich that I'd made. I did do a cheese and Branston pick and one just to sort of, you know, balance it out a bit. Um, But I stopped him just as we went to eat it, said, open it. And he was like, what? And I put a bit of lemon juice in there and he put it in his gob and his eyes peeled back and he'd never had smoked anything and lemon in his mouth he's like oh my god what is yeah. that we we're only like 11 sure. and it was a bit of a kind of ratatouille moment yeah, yeah, but, yeah. and it was daft and silly but then i went just a minute like it ain't, it's not just about me feeling good about cooking when you've never tried something before and it's delicious like it's very visceral and and i knew then like yeah i'm definitely i'm, I'm in for this
Seriously? Yeah. It's like that, a proper moment. A complete moment. I'll never forget it. And I, I knew like the power of food as an enjoyment, uh, as a seducer. And you, and you can be the man that can open the door that these people wouldn't have gone yeah. through otherwise. Yeah. See, you use the word pretentious, which is slightly self-deprecating. I know why you mean it. But if you were French... It wouldn't have entered your mind no, if there was anything no. pretentious Think about helping your normal? mate. Isn't it? Isn't that a strange thing? Because yeah. also Essex, you'd think, would be England squared. But in fact, you were growing up in an environment that was experimental, that did encourage. Yeah. Kind of, you grew up in the environment that you've tried to perhaps oh, yeah. share with a broader public since. And I my, my dad's pub was normal, but of course it wasn't normal. No. There was homemade pate there. Right. That would be sold very reasonably. Yeah. With toast. You know, uh, like, you know, everyone was having tin salmon and we had smoked salmon. It was not normal. No. You know, we'd be chipping. I spent my life chipping potatoes. Like, I, my knife skills are as good now as they were when I was when I was nine. Wow. Uh, I used to stand on, on, a, on a Grosch crate yeah. to be tall enough to, to prep. And we used to prep, prep, prep. And, and, and I think that's like, interesting because people are quite scared about kitchen hot things, sharp things with kids. But like I was nine and I was rattling those blades. And, and I think the concept of respecting blades, knives, respecting uh, how you use it, how you carry it, how you walk around it. I mean, you can die from an inch, yeah, of course. you know, and you're sitting there as a nine-year-old holding a 10-inch blade. Yes. Um, but also, respect, you're learning yeah, respect. And also life's too short as a, a, as a normal consumer or human to be rubbish at knife skills. I mean, one of our most popular lessons in my cookery school is you come in hour and a half, you walk in rubbish at knife skills, you walk out great. Really? Like, yeah. you can do that? Like, looking a donut for 30, 40 years of life with a knife is not even cool. So even from an ego point of view, you're not going to pull more, you're not going to impress, you're not, you're not going to be as fast <laughs> or efficient. But um, no, I, I think... Um, but but what, the point I'm trying to make is what? Um, kids are amazing. See what kids do on Britain's Got Talent. And let them... BMXs at the time. We yeah, were doing yeah, yeah. endos, ollies, skateboarding, and then, oh, then we got a problem with the kitchen. But you, yeah. mu- you must have had a serious side, Jamie, then, because... You're working earlier than most kids are. You, you, yeah. you, you're out with your mates. You're knocking around in the woods. I love those two stories. The first time your dad gave you the impression that you might have been a cut above when you made the Sunday lunch, and then seeing your friend react to the combination of flavours yeah. that you'd introduced him to. That's, that's, that speaks of thoughtfulness, whether you realised it at the time or not. You, you, I think I've always been softy. Right. I've always okay, been... You've done it again. That's, yeah. that's self-deprecate. It's not soft think... to be thoughtful. Romantic. Okay, that's better. Um, very loyal. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. And deep. Uh, I think I have always been, but I've only really discovered it quite slowly, okay. you know. Um, yes. And I just want to be honest with you. I am and certainly was a proper dickhead. Like, honestly, I, 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 like if you'd have known me as a kid, like I was a dickhead. I mean, I just I couldn't stop doing boob bum willy jokes. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you know, it wasn't bright. St- it wasn't like. It wasn't technical jokes. It wasn't even clever jokes. It was just like a volume of crap. Um, and I loved it. And, and I'm not, it might not have been my fault because in the kitchen, you got to remember, I was like eight, nine, 10, and I was in a brigade yeah. of 25, Grown-ups. 30 year olds sure. talking about knobs and tits and, and sort of all the filth that goes along. And it's not because they're dim or stupid. Like being a chef is very, very repetitive. It's very, all very well prepping a box of porcini, but when you've got three yes. and it's the same every day, yeah. right? So you have to master the art of talking bollocks. I'm not swearing for effect. I'm just saying it was, um, this was the environment. This is very sweary, banter and very sweary. Yeah. Very, um, regimental, uh, the French, it was a set up as a French regimental kitchen in the country in Essex. Um, you had a fish section, a, 
a meat section, you had a pastry, you had starters, um, you had a prep chef, uh, and there was a red, you know, head chef, sous chef, chef de party. Yeah, wow. Um, and, um, and they didn't curb their language because I was nine. And you all because I was the boss's boss. And your dad didn't son. want them to either. He, he <laughs> no. knew that their sensibilities have to be. So I was maybe slightly supercharged in filth. Well, yes. Um, no, but that isn't what I asked you. I just mean, it's more, more this notion of, of being a thoughtful, even though you might have been quite wild in a lot of ways. You were at, at quite an early age, you were taking on board quite big ideas. Otherwise, I don't think you would have moved to London at such a young age um, and sought to learn from the so-called masters, would you? You, might, th- you? you had a big picture in your mind even then. Well, you're making me think about emotions that I haven't thought about for a very long time. And I think this is not in a, a, a pretentious way or a oh. kind of trying to get points way. If I get in an Uber, right, Yeah. I say, hello, sir. I ain't got no problem calling someone, sir. I spent my childhood clearing cigarette ashtrays. Yeah. I could have been seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have been seven. You burn the boxes, you clean the toilets, you polish the brass where the boys piss. Do you know what I mean? There ain't no job I haven't done in the pub, and I'm not better than anyone. Sure. So the concept of serving the public is a pub and a publican, and it's not a bad thing. It's not... It's not it's quite on English again, though, isn't it? it? But it's lovely to yes, love people. It's really. lovely to cook for people. To put a plate of food in front of someone when they're hungry and say, "What well, do you want anything else? Mum used to say, just treat everyone like they're kids. Like, because they don't know anything here. They don't know where everything is. Just handhold them through the whole thing. You know, do you want any mustards with that? You know, you kind of that, that whole sort of nurturing. And I think possibly that's where the thoughtfulness yeah, comes yeah, from. Okay. And consideration isn't it that you're describing just taking into account that other people are coming up but it was just normal from what you've been saying at this point if i was to predict where you'd be 40 years later oh god i think you'd have just taken over the pub from your dad so when at what point did you think i want more than this he knew you were special by this point, did he? <laughs> well, I'd have to use uh, I mean, I think he loved his son. Yeah. Special. He knew I could cook half decent, and he was proud of me, uh, yeah. as was mum. And uh, we had two plans. One, the kind of distant conversation of could I take over the pub, but don't forget yes. he was quite young, so sure. you, you don't want to give, oh, give, give the goose yeah. away with <laughs> Back a in your box. <laughs> um, but we definitely it was go away, learn, bring some contemporary skills back to the countryside, which we know so well, and maybe 10, 15, 20 miles away would get you another little kind of decrepit pub and 60 covers you know decent wine list um small but brilliant team uh, and we had that down and we were going to get that okay but that was gonna happen yeah um and i could have done that as a young boy but london happened and i probably was still going to do that until the naked chef happened so you were um, still garnering skills you were still broadening your horizon yeah with, with the plan to be to go back Yes. And, and, and just move Utterly. the family business we were, onto a new level. And we were level. absolutely skint. Jules was working in Maxwell's in Hampstead. There's one in Covent Garden, I think, now. And it was sort of like an Americana place. The so she, she was place. the breadwinner. She'd get really? like 50 quid a night, a night cash tips. And we were skint, you know. And uh, But we loved London. Uh, I'd been lucky enough to work with Antonio Coluccio Gennaro at the Neil Street restaurant, which was a foraging mushroom restaurant. Amazing. How did you land that? How did you get through the door there? Do, do you know what? I'm going to give you all the stories tonight. So it was another bit of, on the last day of college, I went to college for three years. That was in Westminster. Um, yeah, and I travelled two hours to and then two hours back from there. I was still under the realms of mummy and she loved her boy. Um, but I, for the first time in my academic career, I flourished because right. I could translate it. So we right. were doing science, French, um, I did the BTEC, MVQ 1, 2, and 3, and because it was a crossover year, City and Guild 706, 1, and 2. So I smashed the back doors out of everything. Distinctions, A's, 
How did Thank, that feel? How oh that my feel? God, it was like, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah, praise the Lord. And there was purpose learning the science of food poisoning and botulism and, and kind of Staphylococcus aureus and all of that <laughs> stuff. You know, before that, I couldn't, I just couldn't make any, uh, any yeah. sense out of it. But on the last day, they said, the lecturer said, Mr. Richards, he said, right, boys, girls, where do you want to be in a year from now? Great question. Isn't it? You know, and everyone was kind of like, I want to go and work with this chef, that chef, Michelin stars, uh, Raymond Blanc. Did you, you spoke that language by now. You knew yeah, who these oh, people course, were yeah. and because of the nature of the course. Yeah, the- absolutely. The Ritz, yeah. the Gavroche. And I just said, I want to learn how to make the best pasta in London. And the whole room pissed themselves as if it was a stupid answer. Really? And... My mate Marco, who sadly from that day I've never, ever seen since. He was an Italian boy. Um, His family used to run a little um, Italian cafe near Channel 4 building. Absolutely gorgeous boy. He was a bit older than me, maybe four years older than me. Being Italian... He was offended as I was on behalf of pasta. <laughs> By the laughter. Yeah. yeah. So, and, he, and he said, um, look, there's two people. One's my dad and he runs a deli. I think it's La Camisa in, in, in Soho. Yeah, on, on uh, um, Old Compton Street. Exactly. Yeah, it's an amazing And, and he goes, place. look, he's upstairs right. and he's sort of doing it for the shop. You need to go and see Gennaro Contaldo um, in the Neil Street restaurant. I didn't know who he was. Sure. Um, I got home that night and my wife now, uh, then girlfriend, had torn out a job for the Neil Street restaurant for head pastry chef. So like really like Whoa. kind of like, so, um, so massive luck. And I went for, and I wasn't a pastry chef. I had spent a childhood making French meringue, Swiss meringue, Italian meringue, short crust pastry, puff pastry. I, I had done the fundamentals. So I, I, I did have the capacity to blag my way in, yeah. but I knew nothing about Italian desserts which are amazing, but also kind of, they're, they're not, I mean, it's an argument. Uh, ice cream, sorbet, yes, but, you know, arguably Anglo, French, Swiss desserts are kind of maybe a bit more advanced. So I just um, had to get books quick, like within 15 hours, and read and look, and it was very different because they were kind of making what the French or English would use with cream, they're yeah. using ricotta. Right. And, and so I had to learn a lot, I basically had to blag it. And I got the job. We, we did what they were calling those days a stage. So you go and do two days for free. If they like you, they might give you the job. And I got the job. And then I was head pastry chef at the Neil Street restaurant. But really, I was a chef. But I just went with it. And really, the only reason... What was that like? What was that? Because it's the first time you've worked not, not for the family. It's, yeah, amazing. The only Italians, apart from one German in the kitchen. Really? What uh, language were they speaking um, in most of the and, time? Uh, well, the head chef was English. Okay. But maybe 15 of the chefs were Italian. But also, if you're from the north and the south, I mean, they're quite they're quite racist yeah, to each other, no, of um, and, and uh, it's it's hard banter, Some proper tension. Um, and so, uh, so the boob jokes didn't cut it anymore. No, unless it was an Italian. <laughs> if it was an Italian, then you're good. But um, it was in a basement. It was in Soho. I was the pastry chef, so I would work from nine until three, and then six until one thirty, <sighs> and then after like about four months, I asked Antonio, could I do? some work with Gennaro because he used to bake through the night. Okay. And Antonio said, no, because Gennaro was like Antonio's little secret Uh because he helped him with all the books and all the recipes. And often it's Gennaro's hands that were the close up hands in Antonio's TV shows. Because uh, they do a, th- a second or a third pass. Of course. Uh, so he doesn't want you falling under Gennaro's spell. No, or, or nicking his golden bullet, or, or you know. vice versa. So yeah. what I did, going back to boob jokes, was, um, <laughs> so I was a pastry chef, so I was last out of the kitchen. Right. So I'm thinking, listen, if he's the Matrix, which is I'm led to believe he is, mm. how do I get close to him when I'm not allowed to? I thought, well, I'm the last in the kitchen. So I'll measure out some water and yeast and flour. 
so that he can kind of yeah. be a bit, okay, that's Ahead cool. Right, I'll get the ovens at the right temperature. Great. Okay, I've got 50 trays. And, and a nice little trick to really good baking, if you ever make bread and you want a crispy base, use the stale bread, whiz it up to breadcrumbs, and use that instead of flour, and you get the crispiest base. So we used to dust our trays with um, processed stale leftover bread um, and better flavour as well. Um, and I thought, well, look, I'm, so I'm racking it up, but I'm racking up these dusted trays. I've got to draw a penis. So I rattle that in, and, I'll, and then and then because like you've got to remember that Gennaro's coming at three in the morning, yeah, he's and, he, and he's a, a man smile. of the world, <laughs> but he's alone. He's on his own, Good and I'm like, well, I've got to entertain him. Yes. So, and also I've got to do this in reverse because the tray goes up, right? So, uh, penis is the last one, and then um, I was really good at those boobs bums, um, anything sort of <laughs> genitally driven. <laughs> Very basic. This was, this was my forte. International, you though. Know, yeah. Everyone yes. speaks this language. Casata Siciliana, Swiss meringues and penises. What more? <laughs> Repertoire. Um, but I, I, and it I would, worked. Then I'd write, good morning, Gennaro. And I did that for like a month. And in the end, he said, look, don't worry about Antonio. You just come in. So then I was on for about eight months, three shifts a day. Wow. So I'd finish at 1.30. Then I'd get back for four in the morning and do four till seven. So I was absolutely starved of sleep. But it was the best nine months of... He said, you've got to stop now because you look like a bag of shite. But yeah. they're amazing times. And so... How, how did you hold... The, how did you and Jules stay together then? If you were seeing her for about eight minutes good, a day? Well, I had days off, but she right. always worked on my days off. So I'd just hang around her restaurant when it was her okay. days off. But I think we were so young and skint and happy to be alive and free. And I did have a car. I had a nice little Fiesta 950. <laughs> and I just think at that age, like, yeah, just, freedom just into is, whatever, don't is, you? is everything you need. So you, you, you got under Gennaro's wing. Yes. Just, just rewind slightly, and, and then we need to press fast forward a bit. It's the thoughtfulness that I think I want to take away from this interview, because people see you with the bish, bash, bosh, and, and the, you know, when you first came to the public eye. But in fact, that was, you were already at that point a very thoughtful. To have a plan, how can I get under Gennaro's wing? Yeah. Within weeks of arriving in the kitchen, you're looking for the next rung. You're looking for, the, and it's not about ambition, is it? It's about wanting access. to accrue as much knowledge and access and, and yeah. expertise from these people as you could. And, and also, like, I didn't know anyone in London. No. No one, zero. Me and my missus, that was it. But... Gennaro was extraordinary in, in the concept of foraging. Um, he would go out and come back with mushrooms, porcini, um, wild garlic at this time of the year. And, um, and uh, I, think, I think our grandparents would have called it scrumping. Yes, um, yes, yes. But, um, so that really changed me. I think then the passion started to come in. Right. Because I could kind of draw some kind of greater enjoyment over finding, foraging something, doing something to it, accurately and then someone enjoying it and the, the the system and the circle was yeah, really yeah, yeah. was more complete and i think that's when i i remember like oh yeah i'm passionate about this and did you recognize at this point that you were better at it than a lot of other people as well i think better is an interesting word i would say that i was because of my youth and training which gave me a confidence and a kind of a bit more of a 360 uh, radar on the room yeah. and what was happening yeah. in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that I was technically better in a few areas, in a few areas. And I think the simplest way to explain that is if you fast forward to, say, The Naked Chef, really that book and that series, what was it really about? It wasn't, it wasn't a young boy that was brilliant at a wide bandwidth of cooking. It was amazing salads, mm. amazing grills and roasts, and pasta. Pasta. Uh, that was it. 
that was risotto. the naked chef yeah and risotto <laughs> i've got that that's, yeah. the, that's the page that's stuck together yeah <laughs> mushroom risotto yeah fortini in it um well we haven't fast forwarded much have we because presumably not long after you fell under gennaro's spell that that was the move to the River Cafe as a yeah. sous chef shortly afterwards. So again, you, you couldn't have been in a better place. Yeah, I mean, they didn't really have a sous chef uh, regimental system there. Um, I mean, I guess the conceit of sous chef is if you can order right menus and get on the phone and do all of that and sort of oh, make it, it work, which, know you know, I did end up doing sure. that. And I was there for like three years. And, and um, but how did you do that? Why didn't you want to stay at Neil Street for longer, given that you were working with two of the great pioneers of Italian I food? think that Gennaro, because I was a pastry chef and I was milking as much as I could from him, but I think, like, me and Gennaro, and he was quite a lot older than me. Yes. Um, he, he saw, I just remember one day he just grabbed me by the face and said, it's time to go now, boy. Oh, and, and I'm like, like the okay. Godfather. Um, all right. He goes, look, you know, you, you, you need to kind of... And I just bought the River Cafe Blue Book, which just, just like, rocked my world. Like, no one designed like that. Obviously, yeah. Ruthie and Rose are very creative, very artistic, and Richard Rogers is Ruthie's sure. husband. Yes. So they've got yeah. banging taste. Yeah. But also... Aesthetics. Simplicity. Like a, almost a religion. Yeah, less is more. And, and yeah. their design was about less is more, and their food was about less is yes. more. And and to this very day, they're Ramo, and they could have three things on the plate, but they will be the most expensive, incredible things Ever. Which have just arrived from Napoli that morning or something it's, like that. Uh, or foraged. Or, I mean, we were trained in the industry, industry-wide, to have monthly or quarterly menus. Right. That's how we rolled. So That's how you get GP. That's how yeah. you get consistency. And then we were writing new menus twice a day, every day. 14 menus a week. Why do um, you think Gennaro knew that you needed to move on? What, what do you think... Because that's also, I mean, when you described it then, it was quite loving, that picture. Yeah, that I, think, I think it was like, right, you've kind of got everything you need from here. Yeah. Move. And that book fell into my hand and he's like, it looks amazing. And, of course, the girls, Rose, Rose and Ruthie, weren't chefs. No. They were cooks, cooks mm. and had spent a lot of time in Italy. And the industry is very driven by intensity, language, drugs, sexism, yeah. Like loads of stuff you couldn't get away with. Sure. Or shouldn't get away with. And, and wouldn't now get uh, away with. No, and shouldn't. And Different. it was driven by men. Right. And men are incredible for lots of reasons. But you like brilliant, productive kitchens have got loads of girls in. Yeah. And the concept was that to, to do a hard job of a chef, you have to be physical. Like you have to be brawn. Absolute rubbish. Honestly, Rose and Ruthie, I can't tell you, because they weren't chefs, they reinvented the norm. And the family tree of talent that has affected this whole country and magazines and writing and design and even the sorting of ingredients was because of those two women. Mm. I never forget Rose, who's sadly not with us anymore. We get Michelin-starred senior chefs queuing up to work at the River Cafe and they come and do a stage (laughs) and she'd go, I don't fucking care where you've worked before. This is how we do it. And of course... You know, when you're trained in French regimental, it's Brunoise, Macedon, Paysan, yeah, Julienne, yeah, all yeah. specific measured cuts of... She's like, no, no, cut it badly. Squash it. Rip, Handful of this. Rip it, tear it. No, yeah. no, we don't do it like that. Stop doing it like that. No, no, no. That ribolita doesn't want everything the same size. Some cook perfectly, some mush up. That's the point. And that is where the naked chef was born. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Was it? Without question. Without question, because, I mean, the, the Naked Chef has got a funny story. Go so for b- people who don't know, you, you were there for three years, and yeah. halfway through, roughly, a film crew turned yes. up. Yes. 
and started making a program f- about the river cafe. Yeah, and you can probably search it on on YouTube or something. But basically, uh, I look like a baby. Um, just I'm just like a big set of lips on a skeleton, basically. Um, <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, it's all great. Pucker. Uh, that was really me. I yeah. did tell you I was a bit of a knob. So, so, so the pucker was never fake. I was a knob. Um, I've just. It's be- not, there's nothing yeah. knobbish about saying pucker. Mate, I watch a, myself, and I, even I'm like, that's me. Mm. And what a knob. <laughs> but I think luckily I had enough information and enthusiasm to balance the knobbiness. But, um, yeah, pucker. How many times can you say pucker in half an hour of BBC broadcast? It's flipping hilarious. Jump forward. Anyway. No. The crew lights you. Something happened when the camera was pointing at you. Technically now, as a producer of TV, what happened was the girls had chosen a handful of really important, brilliant dishes, which... For whatever reason, and I'm not always sure why, some dishes are just harder to film than others. Right. Right? Technically, and in the edit. The edit points are just hard. So they're cutting the programme. They've done weeks of filming. And then on this Saturday night, I'm off. And Jules is off. And the phone rings. Right? And they go, we're one man down. And can you come in tonight and work? And Jules is like, oh, we ain't seen each other for two weeks. And I come from a family business. So mm. my dad, his advice was always treat other people's business like your own. So, you know, that, so if the phone rings, answer it. If there's a bucket and a mop in the way, move it. Someone's going to hurt himself. You know, there's no, you, you don't do your job. You do, mm. you look after their business. So of course, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, hour and a half. Okay. If you get someone to do a bit of prep for me, I'll come in as quickly as I can. And I got in there, so I'm late. I have to catch up. I've got mise en place to do, which is your prep. Um, it's six in an hour and a half. So I've got to rattle out a bunch of prep and then get ready for service. And we've got a full house. So being young and the energy to do that and deliver that, um, I was chasing my tail a bit. And this bloody cruise there with a lens in my face. So the concept of moving the lens out of the way because it was tight uh, wasn't because I was cool. It's because they're in my bloody way. Yeah. And and then I was just lucky because hot too was the frito misto and the frito misto is like an italian tempura so you could do zucchini you could do zucchini flowers you could do a little sage and uh, an anchovy sandwich you could do fantastic beautiful prime mid-sized chard leaf you could do a wonderful porcini you know all in a lovely crisp batter mm. with mold and sea salt and half a lemon bosh and then you'd have like tagliatelle with girolles uh, then you'd have a little risotto with smashed peas and broad beans you know like i'd have like four dishes mm. that were popular and my section was pumping but most importantly for the <laughs> The tech of TV yes. is it was easy to cut. Uh, so, so well, you're being modest. No, no, really, like, okay. like because I could, because, because in 30 seconds I could show you and talk you through a recipe. Right, you are. And the edit, the editor's like, well, I was only after a bit of reportage, but I just got a fifth recipe, and that's what happened. So I ended up all over this show, <laughs> and I didn't know because they'd been filming for two and a half weeks. So why would I think that my night would be any different than the whole? Sure. You know, and then when it went out, which was, remember, it was Christmas. So like fast forward five months, then when it went out, the world changed and um, the phones started to ring at work, which is orcs. How did that feel? Because you don't, what you haven't done, it's a theme that comes up a lot in in Unfiltered, is the look at me gene. So it's episode 30 now. Episode one was Russell Brand. Russell Brand is like the look at me gene on legs. He was always going to be doing something that demanded attention. Nothing that you've said so far has suggested that you are a show-off or that you need the yeah, attention or that even that you're a performer at that point i hadn't even said pucker on tv <laughs> um do you know what i think being philosophical about it when yeah. i look back at it now with everything that i've learned 
it was a real moment for Britain and it was a real moment for women in Britain and it was a real moment for food. And I happened to be in the best food place driven by two women. And when I say uh, a moment for women, 30 years before, there was way less women going to work yeah. and, and women were going to work. But what was happening was after a 10, 12, 13 hour day of husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, they'd all get home mm. and then men across Britain would look around at their wives and say, what's for dinner? And girls across Britain were going, we're, we're, we're both knackered, right? So then, then the rhetoric is, well, who's going to cook what? Yeah. And, and it was like pushing on the women still. Or you got the convenience option. So that's where Britain was at. And then, obviously, the naked chef was about, well, if that oh. over-enthusiastic young kid can do it, then anyone can. And, of course, one of the first things I did with the naked chef was – it wasn't in chef what a lot of TV and cooking at the time was chefs, Michelin stars, chefs, jackets, yeah. chefs, hats. And I kind of felt that the uniform possibly rightfully so, but definitely with other experts like pilots and surgeons and doctors, yeah. it felt like an expertise dividing the public from. Well, funnily you know, enough, the two books I had then would have been yours and Gary Rhodes, actually. And Gary Rhodes was very brilliant chef, but very much the opposite of what you were that he was the whites the crisp linens and the yeah technical flat, kind of, flat yeah. top haircut yeah that's it i yeah. do but it was about the same time wasn't it yeah. and then you were the i was one. just after him right there you yeah. go so that's why i had both books and you were the one where i thought well yeah i can i can have a crack at a risotto i think my youth was a real benefit and i think the food was easy simple and tasty and contemporary or felt it that way but i also think that a lot of my very quick fame was and it was like unusually what, so. what was that like being honest within was, a week it was like one direction well yeah of course it was it remember went, it went nuts yeah and for about a year and a half it did went, you enjoy it uh well for the first six months i really really enjoyed it i'm like just a minute people think what i've got to say is interesting yeah. and it was just all new and interesting and unlike things i'd never ever 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 dream of were asking me to do it and get paid for it. And yeah. it's like, oh my God. Most of it, if you look at the tear sheets of the press, it was women's magazines, teen magazines. Gosh. And if you look at the papers and the tabloids, it was using me, sometimes maybe unfairly, as a weapon against the other chefs to kick them up the arse. Yeah. And that's why most chefs hated me for about five years. Genuinely. Oh my God. Just little upstart. Well, so what happened is the public loved me yeah. and the book sales went nuts. We sold a couple of million books before you could even wink. Uh, and I went from being skint to having money in the bank. And I'm 24 going just, to, you know, what, uh, 25, what, yeah. what just happened here? Um, but it was a good book and I did put my heart and soul into it. But at the same time, my own industry that I was born into thought, who is that little shite? Which must have been um, annoying because you had the nouse, you had the background. And I had you'd done, a, you'd done your spurs, hadn't exactly. you? Exactly. And I had a lot of my child and teen idols mm. that I adored hate me. Yeah. And it was basically about book sales because yeah. I'd basically sold more than them put together yeah. for the decade before. Yeah. In six months. And they'd know that. And it was and and it was annoying. And I was a bit puckered up and I was enthusiastic, but Christ almighty look at what was happening and then women started getting their boys to cook so there was like for me a very definitive two years when not just my industry hated me but men didn't they weren't too keen either right uh, so i i got roughed up a few times chased a few times seriously yeah because there were women just around the country a... going listen you gotta cook twice a week yeah. if he can you can yeah, yeah, yeah. and of course it was right typically with men which is brilliant and i believe this 100 percent. men in short term saw me um, as an annoyance and possibly, depending on what was said 
at the sofa watching me yes, like um, right. competition or yeah, threat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we we had to take men from a place where cooking was from for girls to a place where cooking got you girls and the minute that boys got laid more because of the naked chef then they stopped roughing me up basically what we're going to do is we're going to skip over the tv series and the moving into opening your own restaurants and we're going to move instead to 15 and the question of why you felt the need to help other people when you were already helping people indirectly, as you've just described very eloquently, you were changing people's lives, you were changing family dynamics, you were yeah. changing the domestic... The um, conversation in food. Exactly. So what happened? Was 15 the first real outbreak of altruism? Yeah. So this was, for and people who don't know, this was when you decided not just to help people who couldn't cook, but people who, who had really fallen off the planet a bit, people who yeah. were really on their uppers, homeless people. Often. Yeah, we had homeless people, people from prison, uh, people that had come from prison or been in prison, uh, or, or just <clears throat> kids that were lost. or so why? didn't quite know. Where did that come from? Um, well, I think a lot of people try and, like, make it seem that it was kind of founded around, like, kindness or concern or charity. I think it could be looked at that at a different point but mm. right then that age i'd gone from being skint to having money like shed every, loads of money let's, yeah let's, quite let's, a lot yeah, yeah i'd had a i think uh, i can give you the exact amount i had in the bank at that stage i had eight hundred and eighty thousand pounds in the bank that's what i had and um the budget for 15 was 650 grand um and I, and and the reason i did it is because i like the idea i could and i did it's as simple as that it's no more overly thoughtful like i just I like the idea and I thought, right, I'm going to get amongst this. Uh, of course, fundamentally, it changed me massively. Mm. And then behind the scenes without me knowing, it became the first bit of social work that I did. Yes. Uh, and it's taking kids that maybe hadn't had the childhood, maybe had the education I had, but hadn't had the childhood I'd had. So you weren't thinking, I want to help people. You were thinking, you thought of an idea and you thought, I want to do this and it helps people, which gave it a whole new momentum. And so, this Can we of- open a re- restaurant that has... Radical change of yeah. the person at its heart. And uh, the system said no. That The system in many governments around the world is very, very bad at making radical change of people of crime. Mm. The reoffending rates, as you know, mm. of young kids within the first three, four years is terrible. And 15 was all the anti, the opposite of that. We, were, we have been, we are, and we did become very good at radically changing kids' that had had rough backgrounds, um, you can say bottom of the barrel if you want, yeah. become leaders yeah. and graduate. We've had like, you know, four, over 400 graduates. And there's a handful or several handfuls now where technically they're better than me now, 15 years on. And a couple have been responsible for Michelin stars and have Michelin stars. I don't. No. So, uh, will, you, will you, you won't ever, will you? It's not. I think I might do it for a laugh one yeah, day. It's not really me. High-end restaurant. But I, I don't really, it's not really me, but I will do it one year. I might be old, but I will do it so for I a laugh. I think you've, you've cloned yourself when you, when you start talking <laughs> about that. There's three or four of you all off doing, doing different things. So that launched what you just described as the social work. That evolved into the, into the school dinners campaign. Again, yes. now that I've understood it better, again, it was the project that appealed including the altruism and the social work. The it food was just the meat around the bones of an idea. Bingo, the turkey twizzler, which leads us, almost with perfect timing, to the obesity strategy, yes. which you thought, because we've spoken a few times over the years, you thought you'd got that over the line with David Cameron. Along yeah. comes Theresa May. It looks like it's getting kicked into touch. And today, by coincidence, it's back on the yeah. table again. 
Yeah, so Therese, when obviously the chaos of Brexit and everything happened, Theresa or Theresa's government or her advisors, I've never spoken to her since then, and mm. and and we had no access to government having had full access yeah. um, in its original creation. Under Blair and Cameron. Uh, you, you uh, well, the childhood obesity strategy was Cameron. Cameron, mm. and uh, it was a robust sort of thirty-five page document. Yeah. I think it published at thirteen. So right. so much didn't get done. Sure. All the words were should voluntary, and the only thing in there that was actually changed was a sugary drinks tax, which was a narrative that I'd driven. Uh, it was. It was a a discussion in Parliament that I'd forced through uh, using uh, the campaigns. The public forced that uh, with me. And Mr Osborne made that decision. So actually it was a terrible childhood obesity strategy, although they said it was world-beating. It wasn't. So now the dust has settled. I think we could forgive her for the chaos of the time, but we definitely can't forgive her for a bad second chapter. And what is really exciting about today is probably for a year and a half we've been trying to get cross-party agreement on the principles of what is a logical and robust childhood obesity strategy. So basically what we're saying is there is no political um, argy-bargy for you, Theresa May, to to do the right thing. Theresa, just do your job and we won't get in your way. We'll support you. Why do you care so much about other people's children? It's a really, really good question. When I started 15, there was a little change. I had my first child, Poppy, the same time I took those kids on who were 18, 16 and 18 in those days. My daughter's now 16. Um, There is a fundamental change as a parent. Uh, It could be romantic. It could just be it. But in those days before it got trendy, where 15 is in Owen Street roundabout was rough. Yeah. And we went there because it was cheap. And and there was loads of gangs around and it was a bit touch and go at night. And when I'd sit, uh, day after day, you'd see these reprobates hanging about, sort of shouting, screaming, throwing stuff around, kicking stuff. And when I had Poppy, I just really clearly felt that's someone's kids. And I know it's really romantic, but they're not just a pain in the ass. They're someone's kids. And, and of course, through 15, it's like possible potential. And then like, look, being dyslexic, and I try and say this to kids, is such an incredible gift if you can just listen to it. Like I have regularly have conversations with really amazing, incredible, wonderful, bright, scientific Oxford University, Cambridge University, Yale, Harvard Mm. graduates, and they're too clever to fix important problems. They're too clever, right? And I, I am not that clever. And But what I am, if you look at anything I've done in 20 years, nothing's clever. It's all common sense. And any good class of 10-year-olds could come up with the same ideas. And I think fundamentally what's really wrong about the progress of protecting child health. Honestly, look, I've spoken to Mark Carney, uh, you know, who's head of the, the, the Bank of England, right? You, you can go to the best e- economist in Oxford, right? You can talk to the brains, right? If you care about yourself, which should mean you know, a nicer environment to live in, earning good money, having yeah. opportunity, having a safe place to go, having your family fixed up if they get ill. If you care about strong and stable, in my mind, you have to protect child health. Uh, child health is strong and stable, right? It ain't the adults now that are going to be driving Britain forward to be the economical, incredible thing that it has why, been. Why and could you, be. mate? Why you? Well, I'll tell you what frustrates me yeah. is... CEOs, CFOs and ministers that are entrusted with the power to make a difference and sell, feed or sculpt the landscape that we live in average three years in the job. And by then they're just learning their stuff. And then there's people like me, people like Hugh Fernley-Wittenstall. There's many sort of 
people, campaigners, NGOs, charities that care, deeply care. I'm the youngest. I've been doing it 15 years. Mm. Like there's people been doing it for 20, 25, 30. I know one that's been doing it for 50 years. who's like beyond genius. And we are a consistent yeah. and it, and you don't have to like me. You don't have to like me to believe me. Like I, I can guarantee you one thing. Like, how, you, mu- how much does it bother you when people don't like you? Uh, it, of course it upsets me. I've had to become tough. And I think it affects me in ways that I can't quite measure. It just has a little cloud over my life when it gets... I've yeah. particularly had quite a, a hard three or f- eight months has been yeah. quite tough. Not just in work, not just in the press, but also... Um, uh, personal challenges with friends and families sure. and people passing away and just stuff that is life, yes. you know, um, but, but you live your life very much in the glare. Yes. I mean, I made a, great. I made a choice to be open sure. and even down to my family. Cause mm. some people are very protective about their family, but to show yourself cooking with kids is a gift. Yeah. It's normal. It's a joy, you know? So, and, and they're on the journey with me and I want to do my kids proud. And, and by the way, like with a 16 year old, I can be an embarrassment, yeah, right? I'm sure. So I've got to do the right <laughs> thing, but I think, I think we can fix this. And it's not that it comes back to food. And that is my expertise. Uh, granted, disadvantaged kids are disproportionately affected by the rage and ravage of an obesogenic environment. Obesity and diet-related disease is a normal response to an abnormal environment. And I hear it from some of your colleagues that I also love, yeah. uh, like most of Britain's middle class, right? And, and we live in an amazing country and, and common sense prevails and personal responsibility prevails and parents should parent kids. All right, yeah, lovely. I agree with all of that, right? But that don't help the most vulnerable, mm. right? And I think that the middle classes and the larger proportion of Britain is affected more than they will ever give credit to by how bad is bad in this country, how costly and how bad and how hideous is bad. And that concept of nourishment in the stomach or the mind and schools, uh, safety, human rights, the concept of that is not just an economic cost uh, that's crippling many, many things. It's also, it, it is crime and it is, of course, crime in all its, it, it, and it is, it's fun and, and it's culture, yeah. you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Britain is, you know, because culture is based around many, many things as we know, but it's art, it's music. You know, a country has to get a point where there's a bit of spare cash to go out and do things, sing, have concerts, have art, have museums, right? Mm. And, and, I, and I think we've had a, it's been a miserable 10 years, guys. Feels that way. But I do think it's not us and them. So when people talk about a childhood obesity strategy, these are all really basic, simple things that some you'll know about, right? Um, So is it okay to target junk food advertising to kids when they're queuing up at a bus stop on a digital screen, right? And relentlessly just give them shite, 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 shite. Is that okay? Yes or no? Okay, fine. If if we have regulation already that protects kids and kids' channels from junk food advertising advertising to six o'clock, if we know they're not there... If we know they're from six until nine and it's Britain's Got Talent X Factor, and if we know they watch the whole season and actually they've actually seen after the season a film's worth of junk food advertising, Mm. is that okay when one in three kids goes to secondary school overweight or obese and therefore has a less productive 
uh, and more costly effect on our beautiful country? And I think no and no. Is and that, it okay? Short termism. Yeah, and, and whether it's energy drinks, is it okay to feed ten no, uh, year olds energy drinks? Protect them. Law. Yeah. Bing bong. But you also, um, I mean, we, we're, we're finished, and yet it feels like we've just begun a whole new chapter. Because I, I couldn't agree with you more. Doing what I do for a living, the idea that they're all separate is insane. What's, Absolutely insane. What's frightening is the righteous narrative yeah. of common sense. And I grew up in that kind of slightly Daily Mail kind of sure. us and them mentality. Yeah. We have to try and curate. And I've, look, I've tried to curate and I failed thus far very, mm. very, when I, I, I did More a thing, I did a thing on holiday hunger last year. Yes. That's an incredibly important dark part of our society, which, so this is, this the is po- when kids on free school meals don't uh, eat in the day. When they're on the school holidays. On holidays. So that same 40 quid, 50 quid of the poorest families, mums, you know, that are probably on benefits because they got a free school lunch, right? Yeah. Or they've had free breakfast and lunch or food for the day and then they're on holidays and they got a stretch money. And the social issues that happened, I've tried to tell that story well and it got the reverse effect because it becomes about ponces, mm. us and them, ah, oh, you know, you just need to get a job and sort yourself out. But the thing is, you cannot get a job when you're worried about Johnny getting fed. And you cannot worry about five fruit and veg a day when Johnny's just hungry and you ain't got the cash. So so I think the beautiful thing about the childhood obesity strategy is most of the weapons in the artillery of the attack, the public will never know about. Yeah, yeah. The public, all the good work, most of... Because actually changing people's habits is the hardest bit. It's incremental, isn't it? It's tiny little ch- d- d- building and building and building. Rather but than- regulations, reformulation, essentially the, the short job of the job to, to look after British kids at its most basic is there's too many calories in the atmosphere. Yeah. So we got, so every, my, and I don't need to give you advice because you're the best of the best, but my only advice when you hear brilliant rhetoric about personal responsibility and choice, my only thing to say is, Choice or a concept of democracy is about choice. If you go to a vending machine and it's only crap, that's not choice. That's not not. democracy. You need a structure to do it because while the cats are away, the mice will play. If you go to a petrol station and it's only crap, right? The amount of calories that petrol stations output into the atmosphere. Fruit at a petrol station is like looking for... You need choice. You need choice. If it's about bog-offs, look, I've got no problems with bog-offs, but at least choice or democracy would be Mm. 50-50. Well, it ain't. It's skewing 80%. Always the fact. So I think like as you go through the list... Yeah. You know, what we require, if, look, what we require to get the job done, which, cause this ain't, this isn't hard. Everyone's going to tell you it's hard. To get the job done is a unified, strategic, clever battle war against childhood obesity and child health. And it is totally doable and it's totally in our gift. And the politicians just have to do their job. Final question. I'm going to channel Mr. Richards from Westminster Technical College. And I'm going to ask you where you want to be in 10 years. Okay. Uh, my hope and my dream for the 2030 project, uh, which is now off, um, is that we half childhood obesity by, by, by 2030. And within the body of that progression is structure to get us back. What, what we crave for is not the holy grail. We are realistic. What we crave for is the statistics health-wise for our children of 2000, the millennia. Dude, under our watch, under our watch in 18 years, we have done a disservice to kids. We have done a disservice to working mums that have put more money in the pot for tax and they've had not enough uh, of money or love or care or observation about what, what understandably needs to be put in place as more mums and dads work. 
And, and, and I think we need to make Britain parent-focused. Fo- We've got to help parents be the best they can be. We've got to support them to do the best they can, no matter who they are, wherever they are. And, and, and I really believe, because it's, it's not about so much the food, it's about health being optimal, being productive, British people being productive so we can do what we're set out. And we, we've got great, great history. Look, we're a service industry, creative industry. Mm. We should be scared right now, by the way. India is banging. Like, China's banging. Brazil is banging, right? America is always smugly one. They own the, the, the system, and they are, you know what I mean? Like, so like, don't go thinking we're all cute, Royal Britain. I love my country as much as anyone else. Don't, this ain't cute. If you're, if you're even interested in UK PLC, right, it has to be driven by child health. Those teenagers, those young parents being full of energy, creatively enriched and, and not worrying about them or their parents dying too young of type two diabetes. It's funny, you know, cause, um, I, I was asking more about what you wanted for yourself. Oh. No, 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 don't answer it. Because I asked you what you wanted, where you wanted to be in 10 years' time, and you, you told us where you wanted the country and other people's children to be in 10 years' time. And that is the point that we leave it. And I am going to allow myself a cautious suggestion that we achieved the ambition I set out to achieve at the top of the show. I, I, I've interviewed Jamie a few times. I really like him. I told you that at the beginning, and, and hopefully now you will have seen a depth and a side to him that perhaps doesn't automatically come across in his his myriad public personas. Um, I hope so anyway. If, if you are profoundly impressed, you'll almost certainly want to vote for us at the British Podcast Award for the People's Choice Award. You can do that by going to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. You've got until the 17th of May, so get your skates on. Remember, wherever you stumbled upon this interview, you can subscribe to the entire series. You can subscribe to Unfiltered. And if you're at iTunes, you can leave a rating and a review. Also, because this is actually happening, if if you really enjoyed it, um, I was talking to someone earlier about the Bill Browder interview and how they'd played it to their wife on a long car journey, then do feel free to spread the word, n- not just to people that you happen to be married to. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.